Welcome to another episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. Today, I'm absolutely over the moon to welcome Sophie Chapman. Sophie Chapman, business lead and director at Heathrow Express. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Intuitive Insights podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Nina. It is lovely to see you. I was thinking earlier about how long it's been since we first met. We had a posh cup of tea in the handsome lounge at St Pancras Hotel. Um, and it's, it just feels so long ago. I'm sure we're kind of, you were working at Eurostar at the time, so we're, yeah. I don't want to preempt the conversation <laughs> because in true Intuitive Insights style, where I'd like to start the conversation is right back at the beginning of your career, please, in terms of um, I'd like you to talk us through where you've been and what you've done and, and also your motivation for joining the transport industry in the first place. Where did that come from? Um, because that always fascinates me to find out why people did. And, you know, there are some who said, oh, I thought I'd give it a go for six months and I'm still here <laughs> 35 <laughs> years later. Um, and then, you know, other people, um, Mr. Hotwood, for example, Mark Hotwood, who knew from the age of four mm. that that's what he wanted to do. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to hand over to you and I'd love you to to talk us through your career to date please Sophie Chapman. Okay thank you um, so I studied uh, at university at Newcastle University um, uh, ironically government and European community studies and the purpose of that degree was to sort of get the sort of Europeans of the future ready to go and be involved in Brussels and so on so that's a bit sad now really that um, Brexit has happened and uh, that was kind of not what was required in the end, I suppose. Um, but when I left university, I, I didn't really, I didn't really know what to do, and I, I wasn't really sure what path to take. And I just ended up working at Waterstones, um, and okay. and earning not very much money, and sort of still living at home and so on. And then um, I saw two adverts, in fact. Uh, one for Eurostar itself and one for Four Seas, which is cross-channel catering company, which was the company that ran the Eurostar catering operations. And so I applied for both. And um, I had a telephone interview for Four Seas uh, in French and I didn't get the job right. um, because the French interview didn't go very well. But I did get the Eurostar job. And uh, I mean, it's almost it's almost a bit mad now, but we started on fifteen thousand a year in 1995 mm. uh, in a you know customer facing job, and that amount of money then was you know life changing. It meant I could Absolutely. move out of home. Yeah, it's huge. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think about what I was earning. <laughs> yeah, huge. and we and we got and we were pre um, uh, privatization. So we 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 got safeguarded travel and free travel to work and all the rest of it. So it was right. like. Amazing. Wow, yeah, great benefits. And um it was brilliant. So there was all it was not long after Eurostar started, it was about uh must have been about nine months after when I joined. So it was right at the start. There was loads of us joining at the same time, all about the same age, and we just had an absolute blast. It was brilliant fun. Mm. And it was, you know, you do get, I'm not sure I would have chosen that before hand the transport industry but you do get it in your blood just the sort of 
it's almost the romance of it and the I- iconicness of it and yeah. the, the all the different people and all the different ways you can make their day better yeah um so yes yeah, so I was a sort of customer facing selling tickets all right. of those sorts of things for so on the station or actually on the train Sophie uh in in Waterloo International right okay yeah. exciting and it was it was brilliant and uh and then I, I sort of kind of I guess in my mind I feel like I got my act together after a couple of years of um really just enjoying life and you know we used to do night shifts and then go off to on the last night shift go off to Smithfield Market and have pints in the morning and stuff oh and good for you just, like, <laughs> lots of fun. brilliant and then um yeah sort of had a little process of getting my act together so then I I started sort of working my way up the ladder at Eurostar so I worked in in the control room for a while did a duty manager job at at Waterloo International ops manager which was kind of deputy to the terminal manager and then I was terminal manager and and all of all through those years Eurostar had some very challenging situations and performance and disruption and you know some prolonged over days and it was a real um looking back on it it was a really good lesson in uh in resilience and knowing you could get through things because sometimes you would have disruption you just didn't know you didn't know when it would end and mm-hmm. it was really sometimes it was very 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 tough and I can remember times when I'd sort of the only thing I could do to sort of get myself through it was just remember that time is going to pass yeah and this will end at some point and in the meantime all we can do is our best sort of thing yeah um so yeah that then I then I was terminal manager for only a brief period of time, but then I I went off on maternity leave and had my daughter. Um, and when I came back, we were in the middle of the transfer from Waterloo to St Pancras, so I uh, took a role which was kind of like being the terminal manager at St Pancras before we'd started there. So really managing the sort of people change um okay. managing people's expectations getting them ready uh for the move mm. and um yeah you know that was a brilliant thing to to be part of yeah. and one of my favorite um things in my career that you know you get to attend events and things and one of the fav- best times I think a uh, uh, sort of a big event I ever had was was that it was called Purple Haze, the opening of um, St Pancras when all okay. the trains came in into, in, through this big cloud of purple smoke. Oh, my goodness. And so we had the kind of staff colleague one the night before, and then right. there was the royal opening the next day. So one of them I attended in the audience, and that was the best bit, really. And the, the second one, I was sort of in the lineup to say hello to, to the Queen, but we kind right. of didn't really see all the other stuff happening although it was you know it was great brilliant to be part of it but I'm sure um but that was actually after that was really quite challenging because um whilst the station had opened particularly kind of back of house and and staff facilities Mm. a lot of that hadn't really been properly finished and um it was it was diff it was quite a difficult start kind of behind the scenes okay um, that's really interesting because um, I, so kind, I of kind of when you're saying about you you know your role was to get kind of almost get St Pancras 
get the get the team ready for that transition from mm. Waterloo to St Pancras. And my first thought goes to St Pancras Station is one of my all time favourite stations. Absolutely, yeah. I absolutely love the drama of it, the the cathedralness of it, the you know the elegance as well. I just think there is a really beautiful elegance and. The pace is slower there. There's not as many people, certainly from my perspective, dashing around. It's all very kind of like, you know, we're all here to do something nice. Mm. So that transition for for the team to come from Waterloo to St Pancras, was it exciting or was there some resistance? Was it more kind of, yeah, we can't wait to get there? Or were there There some people resisting the change? I think overall there was generally excitement and that's what we'd worked on as a whole business to really generate that excitement. But you, you had to be kind of realistic at the same time. And so part of what I was doing was sort of managing expectations that it is brilliant. It's fabulous. It's going to be great. It's a beautiful thing like you've just described. But we are going to have to accept that there's a few things that we're going to need to sort right. out when we get there rather yeah. than that are going to be ready before so and and there was a lot of kind of with various uh, stakeholders trying to get things straight and get things sorted and and just all of us learning how to operate the station because it had been designed certain ways of doing things in mind mm. but then it turned out perhaps in some ways those didn't work so for example travelators are a bit too steep really right. for people with luggage and things like that so mm. really practical things that just had to all kind of work through together to to get to a place where it it was operating smoothly yeah um so yeah after that I um took on a role which is head head of um stakeholder management I think that's what it was Uh, and that covered sort of rail stakeholders like HS1 uh, network rail etc in the UK plus the home office um uh, the border force and then the police and security forces in the other countries as well Right. And uh, um, well, there was and and uh, involved Deutsche Bahn as well, because they were so at that point sort of thinking about coming into to London. And so my part of my role was kind of discussing with them how I was going to be able to how Eurostar and mm. Deutsche Bahn were going to be able to work together. In right. OK. That was very interesting. Um, and yeah, again, another I had so many experiences through working at Eurostar that I would never have, would yeah. never have had. One of those was going to the opening of the depot in Frankfurt with Deutsche Bahn. And uh, their approach to that was there was like chefs cooking things in the middle of the depot. There was loads of wine and everything, which was really? just okay. odd, really. <laughs> uh, and, and then they drove um, the opening ceremony. They'd have got all these polystyrene bricks across the door of the depot, like the train. Right. Yeah, and they drove a train through them. It oh my goodness! Bizarre. So um, complete contrast to the purple haze at St Pancras, yeah. I would imagine. It's kind of coming back to my kind of elegance thing, I guess, in terms yeah. of that station. Yes, and then and and then the other part of that role was um, really complicated, like dealing with all of those different stakeholders. And um, the biggest challenge at that time, which people may have heard about, was the Lille loophole right um because customers could go from brussels to lille which was within schengen uh so they they didn't expect to have to show their passports and there was quite um uh you know 
a serious sort of quite an important lobby that didn't believe they should need to show their passport mm. that turned into the loophole that then people traffickers were using to bring people into oh, um gosh. to bring people into the UK because you could sort of avoid um blimey right you okay. could avoid the UK border force anyway that all landed as a big problem via I think the Daily Mail or something and it was just you know it suddenly became became a massive problem that kind of we had to work with all these stakeholders with all these different interests and requirements mm. and then you know legal rights and you know principles and stuff to try and get Good to heavens. a solution um and eventually the solution was after many months of trying to work this out was to build a separate Schengen terminal at Brussels Midi so that the Lille, Brussels Lille commuters could go in a different route, totally avoid border force, mm. and then be confined to one coach on the train so that you could check that everyone who'd got on by that route then had got off right. at Lille and couldn't be overcarried into, yeah. into London. Oh, see, Sophie, this is a classic example of do you know when if I speak to my daughter's peer group uh, so Neve's 19 now but over the last few years when we've been talking with her friends about career choices or even kind of A-level choices degree choices if I ever say something about you know that what about the rail industry and then people will say oh you know well it's all about trains and it's all about driving trains and it's like no <laughs> what you've got involved in is like far so so far removed from yeah. obviously the people trafficking trafficking could potentially take place on a train so there's the link but for you to be involved in that I'm assuming even though your degree was in government and European studies then you still would have had to learn on the job for this one yeah and the, the really interesting learning about that is how all those different organizations do business and you can't um, approach even the French police and the Belgian police do things differently in terms yeah. of decision making how you engage with them and so French police um, when everything had sort of been decided this is how we're going to do a lot of that conversation had happened so mm. you know kind of most broadly what was going to happen had been agreed but we had to go and do this kind of almost like um, a set piece ceremonial moment and all these men in their police uniforms with all their epaulets and stripes yes. and hats and all the rest of it in a police station in Lille and then me and you know one or two other people from Eurostar yeah had to go and and play out in French this is how we're proposing to solve this problem is everybody agreed wow. and 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 it it was almost the formal endorsement of a decision rather than a meeting where you decide something okay whereas it, with other stakeholders you go to the meeting and it's open and you decide something and you agree it but it's just different yes styles and approaches yeah a real lesson in international business but in <laughs> in real life doing it you're not reading about it or you know watching a youtube video about it you're actually in it and playing a playing a central role as well how exciting yeah, so that was yeah it was was exciting um and then after that role i um i sort of got a secondment to the Eurostar Keolis bid team as deputy bid director for our East Coast bid, which um, anyone who's done bidding will know it's a real experience um, and you have to throw yourself into it. Yeah. And it is sort of 
takes over your life for a period mm. um but again you know it was great great experience and my job was to make sure that a the Eurostar team that were involved in it were being looked after and taken care of and also to make sure that it was all Eurostar-y enough and represented right you know what Eurostar brand was all about um and then when I came back from that I I had what was certainly the best job I had at Eurostar um which is head of onboard services so that's managing the trade managers in all the countries the catering offer the catering contract mm. the catering logistics which is actually really really complicated and the business lounges and the best bit of all which was the relationship with Raymond Blanc um, <laughs> I did not think you were going to say that then I didn't know what was coming but it wasn't that <laughs> and we it was just I think that it, out of any job that job was the one where I could see that we we would do things and they would make an impact on the customer yeah. and it's that that's really that's really motivating I find you know and it was really exciting to kind of go right and you had quite a lot of freedom mm. to sort of say here's what we're going to do now we're going to do this we're going to simplify that we're going to change this um and so yeah but yeah working with uh, working with Raymond was again another sort of experience that I would never have had yeah and I, I've I've got a memory of um, we we used to go and visit the catering suppliers. There was one in each country, and each round of menu development, mm-hmm. he would go to at least one of the tastings. Okay. And one day we we went together to Burgundy. We went by train to Burgundy, right. and um, we were staying in this little B and B. Uh, and <laughs> the memory is of being in a ta- in the back of a taxi with Raymond Blanc. Right going through the 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 French countryside and he was sort of just sort of sitting there chatting away about the Charolais cows and blah 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 and I just had a sort of I can't believe I'm here yeah that's a pinch me moment isn't it (laughs) I can't believe this moment is happening happening to me um the glamour of it all Sophie very exciting yeah we did loads of things together we developed a, a bespoke gin for Eurostar called Toujours 21 and we agreed oh, on the name together. And... A bespoke gin, my yeah. word. Ahead yeah. of the time there as well, though, because <laughs> obviously gin's a big thing now, isn't it? But kind of relatively recently, so I think, last kind of yeah. last seven or eight years. But so yeah. you might have you might have heard of Silent Pool, who are now a big brand, but they they're near where I live. And right. I sort of said to them, Do you want to make a bespoke gin? We might be able to get Raymond Blanc involved. So of course they were delighted so we took Raymond down to the distillery and um, he chose all the flavours and so on and yeah we chose the name together yeah it's all very exciting yeah yeah. and again another kind of you know who knew you did that in the rail industry who knew that kind of stuff went on you know when people are talking about careers that they want to do and presumably that conversation in the back of the taxi was all in French so you're using your languages as well a bit of bit of Bit of, of franglais, oh. yeah. Um, and 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 actually, you know, that job isn't remotely all glamour. Wasn't all glamour. There was a lot of you know walking around the catering logistics units and trying to figure out how to do things more efficiently. And um, you know, train managers in all the countries. Um, and 
but it was just all of it all of it was great fun yeah not all of it I was glamorous. no <laughs> a lot of hard work and as you say a lot of, of of traipsing around a lot of detail stuff a lot of kind of working out logistically how things were going to work um but really nice that there's a sprinkling of fairy dust in there yeah. as well yeah with, no, that's, with a, with they, a famous it, chef yeah. yeah made it a great job yeah but it um, did so yeah, so then I took I had the opportunity to take voluntary redundancy right. from Eurostar and I'd, I'd been there 21 years and I thought wow. um I thought you know I love it but if I don't go now um and take this opportunity I'm never going to know what else I could have done. Yeah. And so I decided to do it. Um and I had 3 months off which is having worked you know continuously yeah. other than maternity leave it's quite um it's quite it's really quite odd not to have a responsibility for anything other than your home and your daughter and your family yeah. and all that sort yeah. of thing but you know so that that was good though a great opportunity and and I would if anyone people get the opportunity to do that I think it mm. really does sort of clear the head and mm make you ready to to go again sort of thing absolutely um, it's that time for reflection isn't it which I don't think that as a matter of course we we have we don't allow ourselves almost that time to stop and reflect and then yeah. go again so to have the opportunity to do that um is a great one I think it's um you know somebody said to me oh, you can have three months off with with no responsibilities you know just not to you know don't you don't need to do anything I think my initial thought would be yes when do you know when does it start can I go now but I know myself well enough to know that I would reckon I'd get three or four weeks in at best and then I'd be like right oh I had an idea about something and I thought oh could we do this and it's and I'd be itching to get back to it so I think it's it's kind of a balance isn't it of saying yeah. give yourself enough time to step back from the busyness and to think um but not too much time but you kind of get out the swing of things and that I mean the other thing about that the only the only other thing about that is that at that point yeah I didn't have a job to go to so right. there is always so that there's unknown of, as well there's yeah. also that kind of in the back of the mind about how long do you just sit here enjoying having the time off before <laughs> you start thinking actually you're yes. going to need to um, make you know earn some money at some point yeah um, so anyway, I I got an opportunity to join a bid team, which was the the Govia bid team for um, Southeastern, and uh, so I set myself up as a consultant mm. and and went off and and did that for a little while. And I must say, bidding's not my favourite thing to do. Right. Um. It, it it's so sort of theoretical, and you don't unless you win, you don't really get the chance to um to see any of it happening that's it the fruits of your labor you can come up with all these great ideas and um and as you say it's it is all great in theory and a huge amount of hard work and then if you win then fantastic euphoria but then obviously the reality of we well, need to deliver that now everything you've you've talked about and come up with you need to deliver i've never worked in a bid team we've worked with a lot of clients yeah on their bid team and I think that feeling of you haven't won just must be heartbreaking because you put, I, I think people literally do put their heart and soul mm. into that process for that period of time. And then to be told that, well, all that hard work has 
kind of come to nothing because you haven't won it must be just absolutely soul destroying so you pick yourself up you dust yourself off and you go on and do the next one if that's you know I know lots of people who yeah they do do, do that they just do it yeah yeah it wouldn't I couldn't do it Sophie no <laughs> it no. wouldn't do for me I'd be broken by it I think I think I mean I've done two and I'd, I'd I wouldn't choose to do that um no. I don't think as a career certainly I might you know if there was a really good reason to do it I'd do it but I'd, I yeah. don't think I'd do it as a as a you know one of these people that kind of has, has yes. made a career doing it yeah which um, work stream were you on on the um uh, on the southeastern I was customer experience lead customer. yeah that's um, the only role I could do as well do you know if I kind of look at it I think gosh there's some really clever folk doing lots of clever things and for me the most exciting bit is always the customer and that kind of feeling that well here's an opportunity to really kind of think outside the box to say right well what what could we deliver and obviously the experience that you had at Eurostar and and having that freedom the autonomy to to develop things and and try new things for the customer with purely with the customer in mind would stand you in really good stead to have some again really valuable input to that bid yeah and the, the thing is that in the way that they work kind of constrains the way that bids work I mean mm. kind of constrains yeah. in a bit in a way that freedom because there's so many things that you have to you have to deliver this part yes. you have to deliver this part and it it kind of boxes you in a little bit mm. And anyway, that 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 one didn't even come to a conclusion. It just drifted along, and then they just kind of said, "We're not doing that anymore." Mm. And nobody ever knew, I don't think, who might no. want it. So, no. <laughs> um, so then, yeah, I had my sort of business going as a consultant, and I uh, I went to work at Heathrow Express as a consultant to help with the business change that kicked off in two thousand and eighteen, which was transferring all the operations over to Great Western. Um, and then eventually to roll out the new refurbished trains that would be um, would be operated by Great Western. So that happened yeah. in in phases over 2018, 2019. And I was kind of leading on on the sort of operations side of, of delivering that change. Yeah. And then um, then COVID came along and um, we Luckily, as Heathrow Express, we were able to furlough people. Um, we went down to two trains per hour. We had no passengers. Um, there was a couple of times I went to the airport and it was it brought it home to you much more than sitting at home in your little bubble. Yeah. Um, just walking through Terminal 5 and there was nobody there no. and the airport was open. Really quite uh, eerie, I would imagine. Yeah, it was. Like, it was a bit if, apocalyptic. Yeah. yeah, like a Will Smith film, you know, <laughs> without the benefit of having Will Smith. <laughs> and um, so, the, and and so, we were already restructuring the business because of the old transfer to to Great Western. Yeah. Um, and then Heathrow restructured and Heathrow Express restructured, and on just at, towards the end of that, so September twenty twenty, as part of the restructure, the business lead decided to take voluntary severance right so uh I interviewed for for his job and mm. um and was successful and then immediately started to think oh my god what have I done <laughs> we, were, we were in the in the middle of kind of two related but separate restructures no passengers 
and then there was this whole pressure about the trains needing to be in service Mm. the deadline was February 2021 otherwise we wouldn't have got out of our depot at Old Oak Common which would have knocked on to HS2 so it, it it felt like the stakes were quite high. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, bit of a sense of urgency there. And and of course, COVID had knocked onto the rollout, the refurb of the trains, and mm. so on, so on. So it was um, uh, my partner in crime, Barry Milson at Great Western. We 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 considered it quite a character building uh, part of our careers, <laughs> uh, getting through that. Um, so yeah, so then 2021 has been really about dealing with thinking things are coming back, then they're not coming back, mm. uh, looking after our colleagues, uh, bringing them back from furlough, getting the trains into service, managing um, ETCS, which is a whole podcast in itself <laughs> about um, the lessons learned from from that experience yeah. and the complexity of it. Um, and yeah, it's only now, it's in, only in the last three months that it's felt like things are recovering. Right. And okay. um, because it's been sort of stop start. And in January, we still had the work from home instructions that that really impacted on both the airport, but particularly Heathrow Express. Mm. Uh, but now the airport recovery has been faster than probably anybody expected. And yeah, it's 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 brilliant because it, it's given everyone a lease of life you know everyone can do what they're here to do mm. customers are really up for a, a holiday and and getting back to travel so you know it's a great opportunity for us to to give give customers you know what they need and and what they need is actually looking after more yeah. than they normally would because everyone's everyone's forgotten everything about how they used to travel internationally mm. so one of the things we do everyone at Heathrow does is here to help put the put the purple uh, polo yeah. shirt on and go and yeah. um, tell people what to do with the plastic bags at security or manage the trays and things like that right so we're going back to basics then aren't we in terms they, of this is yeah. how we travel yeah and they rock up and 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 I would say 50% of people that I encountered when I've been doing that job yeah. is a, a sort of either can't remember know there's something about the bottles and the bags and the liquids but can't yeah. quite remember what yeah or de- or just look at you and say what's this for mm. um, I find that really interesting I I flew out of Liverpool um a couple of weeks ago two or three weeks ago and I'm, I thankfully haven't got haven't didn't fly from Manchester because that just sounds like it's like just very challenging for yeah. the people who are working at Manchester airport I was absolutely amazed, Sophie, at how many people, if you'd have just told me that story and I hadn't been through an airport recently, I'd have been like, what kind of people have forgotten that you need to put your, you know, and if you can't take anything over 100 mil and you've got to pull it all in a plastic bag. But but there were loads of people who had forgotten yeah. about what you do, exactly what you've just said. And it's weird. And I think the other thing that that kind of we picked up on was, there's also a sense of nervousness mm, really very traveling. much so yeah because we haven't done it for a while it's kind of getting back into that swing again so that was also really from a human behavior perspective I found that really fascinating uh, we've seen um you know higher level of verbal assaults and 
um, that sort of thing. And I think it's partly driven by that anxiety. And that it's not just because we haven't tra- travelled for a long time. It's also um, because of the other, you almost don't, not sure you're going to get to where you're going until you're safely <laughs> through the border at the yes. destination because of all the checks and paperwork and things. And, yeah. and that's easing off now. But I think for that first few months, everyone's anxiety levels are yes. much higher. So, um, yeah, we certainly worked with our colleagues to sort of say, you know, we need to we need to recognise that people are in a, a stressful situation and, yeah. and they need to be kind of looked after and helped. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's it. It's in a completely different way. It's really interesting. And I think, so what occurs to me, Sophie, as you've kind of taken me through your career story up to this point, is that you've found yourself at various stages um, in in change and transformation, leading it, helping other people to navigate it, been through privatisation, you've been through that kind of moving from Waterloo to St Pancras and all of these different um, different elements of change. I think it's fair to say, and I've only been, I'm still a new girl. I've only been in this industry for 10 years. So I'm I'm still very much kind of in my very steep learning curve. But is it fair to say that the change and transformation that we are currently at the very start of is the biggest thing that has happened in terms of, of change in the industry? I think I think it could be. Okay. Um right. We have to wait and see. Yeah, and uh, I guess I guess you, a couple of my three wishes that uh, yeah, <laughs> relate yeah. to this. Okay, uh, so we'll 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 move into that, and that's kind of where the conversation is going. the The experience that you have, the knowledge that you've gained through the various roles that you've done. When you look at where we are now as an industry, and and obviously, you know, we're recording this on the last day of May. It's, it, you know, we've, we've got all sorts of things hanging in the balance in terms of, of what's going to happen next. Um, I'm going to grant you three wishes. I'll get my, <laughs> my magic wand out of my bag and, and, and wave it and say to you, Sophie, what if, if you could have those three wishes for the future of the rail industry, what would it be? So the first one would be to have some more women in uh, senior roles and and in general, more diverse people in senior roles. Yeah. Um, I'm not always, but I would say very often the only woman in a meeting that I attend. And, and that's always you know, often been the case. But I think now that I'm in this role where I probably speak more frequently to the traditional rail industry mm. than I did before it's more noticeable um so I think and I think you know we all bring something different don't we and and if everyone's the same then mm. then possibly we won't get to the right decisions and yeah and so on I think that's and I completely agree as you would expect me to um, and I think that there is a general understanding in the transport industry, not just rail, but across the piece, or certainly rail and bus, maybe aviation is a, a bit better balanced. But yeah, we know we need a more diverse um, workforce. We know we need to see that diversity, particularly at leadership level. Um, and there's lots and lots of reports out there. You know, McKinsey would be the, 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 the most um, 
easiest one to recall. But why is it important now? Why do we need it now more than ever, in your view? I think because it represents the change that we're we're trying to achieve, which is modernization of the industry. And and how can it be, you know, outwardly seen as modernized or feel modernized to work in mm. if it's the same sort of profile of person that is in all the or a majority of the leadership roles? And perhaps we need some fresh perspectives to make this change work. Yeah. Yeah, you're not hearing any argument from me on that one, Sophie. Um, um, so my second, my second one is, um, is, and I don't think this is likely to happen unless you're very, very good at your magic <laughs> one. I've supercharged it. Is, um, is to get the reform done quickly. Because mm. I think the longer everything takes to do, the further away we get from what the original idea of it was. Yeah. Um, and you'd start to potentially lose the vision uh, that that we were trying to achieve in the first place, which mm. is simplification, modernization, you know, working in the interests of the customer. And I feel like it's already getting too complicated. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of people working on it already. Mm. And we interact with quite a few of those in yeah. different reasons. Um, and also um, linked to that is kind of change management, you know, that huge workforce, most of which work for Network Rail or the, the DFT managed TOCs, mm. um, are all going to be affected. And, and so I think ideally it would be done quickly and with really, really good change management in place to, mm. to take those people with the change. Yeah, um, but I'm not sure we're there right now. I think um, there. It's funny, isn't it? There are different words that, when I'm in conversation day in day out, um, there are trends in terms of words that people use. Um, you know, and, and there was lots of those, obviously, during the, uh, the during the the early days of the pandemic. Everything was unprecedented. Um, and then we were all pivoting and there's all these kind of words. And I think the one at the moment over the last, um, I would say over the last six to eight weeks is glacial. <laughs> and it, you know, I was reading the, my rail magazine yesterday when it arrived on the, on the doorstep and, and it's in there. The word is in there. And it's kind of, this is a lot of people are using this word in relation to the pace of change. I think the challenge is, that the, the change that needs to happen is so enormous, even if we just consider the number of people that are involved, that it's, it is the proverbial turn in a tanker, isn't it? You know, it's kind of how the heck do you do that and, and get some momentum? Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that it, the slower it is, the longer it takes and the higher the risk that we lose sight of why we're doing it in the first mm. place. But of course, and you've got constant change happening whilst you kind of right. well, we set our stall out. This is what we're doing. We had the, the William Shapps plan for rail just over a year ago. And that set out the direction. But so much has happened since then. So there's these constant change within the change, isn't there? Yeah. And then my third one relates to um, this as well. But it's this is more about cus customers. 
And I think there's a risk that under this big umbrella of, of GBR, we end up with a sort of so simple, lowest sort of common denominator of service that mm. fits everything across the country, um, you know, that's delivered through through kind of standards and metrics and whatever. And what would be a real shame that's, that the talks, some of the talks do really well, some less well, I guess, is 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 catering for their own audience or their own part of the country or yeah. the type of customer that that travels on their train or the different types at different times of the week or whatever and everyone's having to 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 change now because the demographics have changed yeah um, and I think the risk is there's t- there's two there's one which is we get a kind of one size fits all this is how the service is on GBR railways mm-hmm. and the other is and particularly going back to to open access operators, because obviously I've only really worked for Eurostar and yeah. Express, is that's where you see that individuality coming through. So if you think about all of them, including, you know, Lumo, Whole Trains, Grand Central, yeah. us, Eurostar, they all do something different and they do it well, mm. but it's not, doesn't tend to be quite the same with the, 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 the the DFT managed yes. talks, yes, uh, because there's much more specification, and it's not about the people that run the services. I don't think because there's mm. lots of people, good ideas, but if you stifle all that because you've got one size fits all, yeah, um, you, you're not going to be providing something fantastic for customers. Mm. And, uh, and so, so I guess there's there's that there's there's protecting open access operators because mm. they do offer more yeah, different different yeah and um the other thing that we can do that i don't see that in the future gbr would be able to do but might need to think about how it does do it is being agile and doing things quickly and responding to change and mm. you know a, li- a little example is we started getting complaints um uh when we brought the new trains in and as customers started to come back after the pandemic mm. Um, about noise on the trains and you might remember that Heathrow Express used to have BBC News with the volume on yes that was a real USP and everyone loved it blah blah Mm. now they don't they want because everything's changed it feels like customers want peace peace right that we've done you know we could just say right what we're going to do is we're going to turn off BBC we're just going to have subtitles only we're going to replace it mm. we're in the process of doing that with onboard media with a QR mm. code and all the rest of it. Um, we're going to minimise the announcements, you know, and we're going to try and create an environment that's as quiet as possible. But we could just, mm. we could just decide to do it. You can make that decision, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I won, I won, and then, you know, Grant Shapps about six months later said he's going to do a report into whether customers like announcements. And it's like, if it's going to be that long for you to <laughs> decide what to do about a customer changing requirements then it's not going to be quick enough and actually everyone's demonstrated they can move quickly because they had to in the pandemic absolutely the industry responds amazingly well doesn't it to a crisis and decisions were taken so quickly things happened so swiftly I think the examples of collaboration 
were just amazing, where everybody just worked together, irrespective of owning group, whether it you whether you were a DFT talk, whether you were an open access talk, and this kind of you know, knowledge sharing and and sharing the pain actually to some degree of kind of well, we're all we are literally we're all in this together. Um, and I guess the there's there's a message there for colleagues at the department in terms of whatever the passenger service contracts come to look like, because there's a definite um, benefit to one size fits all from an efficiency perspective and therefore from a cost perspective. And obviously, you know quite keen on focusing on that from the mm. terms of the whole of two billion pounds that we're looking to fill but if you are if you are contracted and working to that contract within an inch of it the ability to respond to customers quickly um, and therefore impress them and delight them is stifled because well we've got to go and get a we've got to get a change report on that and see if yeah. we can go outside of of the contract and I don't think customers would respond necessarily very positively to we need to wait six weeks for somebody to sign that off. But what you could do is come up with a method where uh, a change under the value of X only needs one stamp on the you know only needs yeah. one person at the GBR to be consulted so it could be done in a week or what. Whatever yes. you could, yes. you could put mechanisms. There's ways in, around it, isn't there? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that that's being done, but I think it's a risk of such with such a big organisation that yeah. you end up with all this governance that stops people just doing things that they know are right. Yes, yeah, and my my concern there would be around the people who have had that autonomy previously in their roles in their senior roles in the industry we'll start to get a bit naffed off with the whole kind of, oh, no, you're not allowed to do that and you're not allowed to do this. And then we start leaking talent, which I think we've we've kind of seen in a in a much smaller way than I was anticipating, if I'm honest. But I, you know, wouldn't, it's something we need to keep an eye on as an industry. There's so much to do, Sophie. You've had, there are three wishes there, all of which I can completely and utterly relate to. Um, thank you for sharing them with us. And I think for, for kind of just starting a thought process off and be really interesting to see when people listen to, to our podcast conversation, what their thoughts and comments are as well. Um, I could talk to you for ages. I love our conversations. You always uh, provoke a different way of thinking for me. Um, but I have to bring the conversation to a close. And in, in traditional Intuitive Insights style, um, I'm going to ask you to share a quote with us, please. Something that has meaning for you, that has um, you know, you've kind of returned to perhaps throughout your career or actually something that just means something to you now. So um, my quote, it's not so much a quote, but it it is it is a a thing that is said continuously every day. Okay, uh, which is uh, put your own oxygen mask on before um. assisting others, and um, I I I believe that leadership is all about helping other people to flourish and mm. looking after other people and taking care of them, uh, nurturing them and enabling us all to succeed yeah by doing that and um you know again probably another conversation but I've had times when I've not looked after myself and I've become less effective mm. and less, less able to do that and learn my lesson yeah uh, and and I feel that that kind of it's a you know 
it's a bit of a trope, I suppose, but it encapsulates for me that if you don't do that, then you can't help other people. Yeah. And um, it's so important because we get swept up in all the things that we've got to do. And um, sometimes you need to to make sure you've got things in place that keep you going. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. It's it's so when you hear that message when you're on the plane, it goes against every everything, doesn't it? Especially if you're traveling with young children. Yeah. Um, do you know, I can I'd, I'd remember hearing it and thinking, well, I couldn't possibly put mine on first. I'd be wanting to sort the kids out, you know, but it's it's so true. If you can't breathe, you can't help anybody else. So it's I think it's massive. And I, I'm really grateful to you for putting it on this podcast because we haven't had it before. It is it is something that I come back to time and time again. Um, and it and it's absolutely critical. But I think also, Sophie, what, what that does um for me is is emphasize again one of the, the things that I really enjoy about what you bring to this this party in terms of your leadership style. You and I have talked about this before in terms of your your leadership style, you're very nurturing, but I also um, consistently find you very open and very honest about where you are. And I think in terms of people who work within your team, then that's a trait that is very much appreciated because you are you, you are able to connect with people. And I think that's something which um, is really important as a leader. I think it's always been important, but as we move forward into whatever we're facing, I think we'll become even more critical, quite honestly um thank you i have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation um i really appreciate you taking the time out of what i know is a really busy diary to to join me on the virtual couch uh, for this <laughs> podcast series um and i shall look forward to seeing you again very soon but for now sophie chapman business lead and director for heathrow express thank you so much for joining me thank you it's been good fun thanks very much nina My huge thanks to Sophie Chapman, Lead Director for Heathrow Express, for sharing her career story to date and some of her own intuitive insights in terms of the UK transport sector.